Dr. Panagis Galeasatos, or Dr. G, is a physician, researcher, and educator at Johns Hopkins University, located in Baltimore, Maryland. His new initiative, Medicine for the Greater Good, is designed to get doctors and clinical practitioners outside of the confines of the hospital. His goal is to get them to get engaged in the community and other socioeconomic diverse groups to understand how their environments impact their health. Dr. G was greatly involved in the COVID pandemic, assisting others as well as bringing cancer screenings to the local community. Dr. G's work with Medicine for the Greater Good has got him featured as a TEDx speaker, as well as featured in major national news networks. In addition, he is also my personal doctor with a rare genetic disorder that I have, HHT, with blood vessels that form in my body where they're not supposed to. His work with genetic disorders is also to understand how socioeconomic diverse groups can get rare genetic diseases treated faster and detected earlier. So please enjoy my conversation with Dr. G on medicine for the greater good here on the Business Samurai Podcast. Do you enjoy talking business? Do you enjoy reading about business? Do you geek out over the entrepreneurial journey? If so, then you are in the right spot. The Business Samurai Podcast brings you the stories told by the people themselves. You'll be immersed in a wide variety of industries, from venture capital to gourmet popcorn, learning how to be a better leader or the personalities behind solving the broadband crisis. At The Business Samurai, we believe it takes a wide variety of skill sets and experiences to be successful in business and life. Our aim is to not only entertain, but educate. For you to recognize how successful tactics and motivations in one industry can help propel you forward in your own unique business. Sit back, enjoy, and welcome to the Business Samurai Podcast. I am your host, John Barkley. Dr. G, it is awesome to have you here. You work at probably one of the most renowned institutions in the country, if not in the world, at Johns Hopkins. You're out there in the community a lot. How would you rate us as a society on how our health stands and how we're treating things, just in general? Yeah, no, I'll, I'll take a very US-centric approach to it. I think we have all the tools for health all the things that we need in order to promote health and keep in mind health from my standpoint means yeah we're functioning at a high level where we can just achieve our own best potential if we don't have health holding us back we have a lot of those tools to help from curative to accommodation the biggest challenge that we have is just they're not distributed equally and there's a good portion of populations who disproportionately feel unhealth issues a lot of them really generated from their own not their own but generated from social structures and so forth. So I think we have all the right tools. We could do better to have equitable health outcomes throughout the U.S. What would you recommend? As, I know you started the, what's the name of the uh, program? For the Greater, greater Good. Medicine Med for the Greater Good. And I've got it up on the other screen over here. What it, What would you recommend to start getting out and start making those improvements to make it more equitable for everyone in the population base? Yeah, no, so from my standpoint, this is a great question. I get this asked all the time. Like, how do you achieve health equity? And first things first, I think we have to realize it's not going to be from a hospital. We, we practice medicine. We don't practice health. And I don't say that at all to put down our profession. I love my profession. At the same time, we have to recognize we're very reactive, right? We're going to mm -hmm. find diseases. We're going to try to treat those, maybe not necessarily abnormalities. And so from that standpoint, you can't wait for a hospital to be the leveler of health equity throughout throughout a society, throughout a neighborhood, throughout a city. What I would love, right, if someone's like, what's your best answer to achieve health equity? It's that it's it would occur if every social entity was held accountable for health outcomes, right? School systems, not just grades, health outcomes. Transportation, health outcomes. Housing, health outcomes. Right. If they all felt that notion of accountability, is your housing doing enough to keep people healthy? Right. Meaning up to date with good airflow, air quality, no mold in the buildings and so forth. Transportation. Is it accommodating? Can you get to it? Is it easy to access? Right. Is it disproportionately effective in one area, not in another? If every notion of social of the social fabric of what makes us humans felt accountable for the health outcomes, that would be transformative. That would be revolutionary. And I see this because that's what we would need. Hospitals aren't gonna achieve that. Hospitals are good levelers of health equity once you're in there, but then you're gonna go back out to the same factors that resulted in those health disparities to begin with. 
Now, that's something I saw within your TEDx talk and with reading about the program that you've got. It was doctors, practitioners, it's the environment has just as much of a bigger play. But what did you have like an aha moment where it was like, hey, we need to go beyond the bounds of the facility and the practice? Was there a particular patient without obviously without divulging anything? But was there like, hang on a second, we need to this. There's a trigger point here. We need to come at this problem in a different way. From my standpoint, it was this is where I had medical school training starting off as an intern at Hopkins supplemented with my years of just living in Baltimore City. Actually, where I'm speaking to you now, my office the window overlooks my community that I grew up in. And my aha moment came coming back to this hospital, being like, all right, this is where I train, I'm back here. <laughs> and just realizing it was really that, those moments, early in intern year, July and August, you're sitting here, I'm like, I got 200 grand worth of information and you can use it, but it's not enough. Science is, it's a string of objective facts, right? It's, it doesn't align with a culture. It doesn't align with an identity. And I see this not, again, not putting down science, but people, my belief, people want to feel a sense of purpose and they'll align that sense of, and drive a purpose with maybe a religion, maybe a work with, with their family. And so when science dumps out all these facts, people are going to look to see, well, how does this align with who I am? And that's my aha moment. Really, I'm seeing this now years after my intern year, a little bit more succinct. But that's what I was having with each patient. As doctors, we try to persuade them why they need to take medications and so forth. Unless you then have some cultural humility, you won't win them over. And that to me was a big gap. And I say this because when I would work with these patients in my intern year, these weren't my these weren't patients. These were my soccer coaches, my aunts, my uncles, these were neighbors, etc. And I'm sitting here listening to people talk about the diabetes, and I'm like, oh my gosh, like you, you gotta understand where they shop, you gotta understand what they're eating. You got to understand their culture. You're asking them to cut out things that are traditional dishes. That's not fair to them. You're copying and pasting things, mitigating what means for them to be a human being. And so that to me, it was many of patients with aha moments. It wasn't one, now reflecting back on it, it was a ton. And this is again, not every patient or not every provider needs to practice at the hospital they came from. But they need some level of cultural humility to understand that science is much more complex, medicine is very much complex, and how you align it with patients' interests. That should be the dream. It's like playing music. No musician goes and plays every single note, and you'd get a cacophony out of that. Your audience, you put together three or four notes, you repeat them, boom, you won the audience over. Same thing with physicians and science and so forth. How we message and send out those kind of uh, information and messengers to deliver them, you got to know the community. You have to know where people are coming from. And then you can begin to have these conversations of winning them over. And that's where community engagement, in my opinion, getting doctors bedside into the community. That's why we created it. That's why we do what we do. I, and I found it pretty interesting listening to, to, to you talk about when you first started going out into the communities and you, I believe it was breast cancer screening you talked about, and it was like the community was resistant. Maybe they didn't have that, that access to the hospital to you like maybe I do or some other people. And you're like, hey, come do this, but they didn't want to be viewed as a patient. So how long did it take when you said, all right, we've got, we've got medicine for the greater good. We need to go get some community involvement, understand the environments they're coming for to build that trust up where it was becoming that the help that they needed and that you wanted to provide really started to come together and start to get integrated. That, that's a great point right there. That, that was the other eye-opening thing. People don't want to become patients. Being a patient is hard, it's frustrating. It's like a... And it's not like I want them to live in ignorance, but there's a way to deliver this messaging in order for people to understand, no, it can align with my calls. It can align with my identity. When we went out to do these free mammogram screenings a decade ago, all we did was just plant ourselves there. Like, ah, oh, we got mammograms. No one came. We didn't talk to them about what this could mean for their lives. They saw this as a way, honestly, many of them, one, one thing I didn't share in that talk was many of them saw this as like a capitalistic ploy to get money to the hospital. That's uh. not at all. Here's a good intention that had unintentional consequences perceived as bad. I'm telling you, if medicine is really meant to be part of the fabric of a community, you need to start acting like it's a member of the community. You need to start acting like it's out there, talking with people, engaging with people. You got to get your doctors and your nurses out there. And then this, yeah, it's going to mean like, where do we find a time? To me, it means reshifting what it means to be a, we provide care for these human beings. 
we got to know where they're coming from. Why is the same patient coming in and out of the hospital with the same asthma exacerbation? When you go to the house, we find it's covered in mold. Ah, there's your eureka mold. All right, fine, we'll move them out. All right, who's, then who are you moving in? You're not, you're just moving the problem around. Let's talk to housing. Let's see if we can make them feel accountable and just shift the economic look for humans. Everything we've created that has this impact is man-made. And so we can un-man make it. And we just gotta redefine what it means to live and try to achieve health equity from a social standpoint. That way, you know, patient, human beings don't perceive us as trying to make them patients, but perceive us as we wanna try to keep you healthy. That's it. No, and I think that brings up something because I've read the articles over the years, man. I'm like an orthopedics nightmare or dream besides my HHC stuff, which we'll get into a little bit later with the many of the stuff that I've had. But do you think that the way that the system is structured now, the patients seem more as a their product to come in there, and that's what some of that resistant was? Because I know when I went in for stuff, you've know, had two knee surgeries, multiple soldiers, so you get mystery bills in there, and you're always worried about a thing of. Oh, I don't know what I'm going to get because it's not really health. It's seen by a product by the corporate entity, not the doctors necessarily, but the corporate entity that's overseeing this stuff or insurance companies. Yeah, no. And from my standpoint, that's, again, it's redefining how health is distributed and so forth. And if we really, look, let me rewind a little bit. Physicians, what I'm sitting here and telling you, if we traveled, we did a little time traveling. I'm looking for the button here. I don't think there's a time travel button. And we went back to the age of the Hippocrates. You'd be like, yeah, that's, this is what doctors do, right? Every big cultural movement, especially those driven by faith, from Judaism to Islamic faith, people that were identified as doctors didn't hide, didn't sit in their clinical walls. There, there wasn't, you went out. Meaning what I'm alluding to is the definition of what a physician meant over the last thousand years was this i'm not doing anything revolutionary it's just revolutionary to our ears because the practice of medicine has changed in the last 100 years right yeah we have the great science like, don't get me wrong but how we implement it how we tackle it and how we've created our own disconnect from communities that's new to us right that's new to this profession if we really go back to the roots of how physicians came to be and how they were perceived and how they were actual community members it will change there was, there was a physician whose name is on the Declaration of Independence, right? Dr. Benjamin, um, and that's how he practiced. He was a psychiatrist. He went out into the community. He made it clear, you gotta know where people are from. <laughs> here, I'm like, this again, he didn't say anything revolutionary. He just did what the notion of a physician was over these years, because you wanted to find the genesis of the pathologies, right? Where are they really coming from? Where's this cholera outbreak coming from? Where's this tuberculosis outbreak coming from? You wouldn't know unless you went out into the community. Yeah, we have good public health officials to help us, but that shouldn't be a doctor's excuse to say, I shouldn't step out into the community and hear what their health interests are. What's going on in the back of your mind? Yeah, it's, I, I get there's a capitalistic conversation to this, and that, this is fine. There's economies and so forth. We've got to hire people. Sure. I get that. But it shouldn't come at a sacrifice from doing what is at the ethos of being a physician meant for thousands of years. No, and I think that goes back, and I don't know if this is true because I never lived in an era where you talked about maybe doctors being, like said, out in the community, but I just watched an old Western and it's like, I gotta go get the doctor and bring him to the house. That stuff where they were talking about doing house calls and knowing the people that were around. But with the initiative that you're doing, is this something that has just been local in Baltimore or are you trying to influence other regions, other larger institutions to start implementing this and using what you're doing at Johns Hopkins as a model Great question. First of all, we got to prove it's worth here. In the last decade of doing this, I think we've done that pretty darn succinctly. And you know, now what I can wave my hand at is look at what we did during the pandemic, right? The communities that partner with us, more than 90% of their congregants, tenants got vaccinated. And if you talk to them, it's because we partnered and collaborated with them in order to deliver, to deliver that message in a manner that aligned with this community. Right? It's not us going out like, saves you lives. We didn't go and give grand round presentations. We went, we spoke for about 10 minutes. The Imam came up, quoted the Quran, why the teachings from the Quran meant to get the vaccine. Life was, life was good, people <laughs> agreed to it. And so it's taken me a decade to understand the complexities of this. A lot of it has also been humbling. A lot of it is really realizing people don't really need doctors so much as you need them to advocate, you need them to scream out loud for them, to partner with them. We can't walk in their shoes, but gosh darn it, we can walk next to their shoes as they go through these struggles. And so I think 
every healthcare institution, every healthcare system can take on very similar models and it needs to. It 100% needs to. Because as we saw what happened to the pandemic, we rely on patients to take on the proper measurements so they don't get sick and overwhelm a healthcare system. And your patients can only do that if you got great medical messaging that's part of the fabric of a community. So full disclosure, and actually probably announcing it here in your podcast, I have a book deal, 2023 will be our book, Medicine for the Greater Good, which will lay out that foundation. How can every do this? Can every healthcare system do this? And I'm hoping it's not seen as an evolution or a revolution, it shouldn't be. It just means, hey, we're going back to the, our roots. This is what we did. This is how physicians were always seen in a community and we need go back to that because in my opinion we got the we got great science let's just make sure it actually makes the impact on every population out there no that's awesome and uh, congratulations on the book deal i'm glad you brought up the pandemic because i wanted to talk about that for a little bit as, as far as building trust within the community i feel like this was obviously something that was it was politicized i feel like i'm pretty i'm going to say me personally have usually been good about weeding out hey somebody's trying to project their opinion to guide somebody to a direction versus actually here's the objective facts and there was obviously it just became so much noise out there when the pandemic and then you were into your whatever this year is now three two and a half three truth from fiction how much of what was going on in the news non-stop affected your ability to provide treatment and then after we go through this, I actually have a couple specific questions that I still today don't know the answer to. Yeah, no, and again, the, to me, the, the ugliest thing about the pandemic was many of us, many of us who knew and others who were just like, wow, like Francis Collins, director of NIH was like, I didn't realize people were just not gonna believe us about this. And I'm like, you're not out in the community. Of course you would not know this. Of course, like, again, science some way shape or form we have isolated ourselves right we have made our we have our own gospels and our own qurans and our own we have our own books but we don't preach them we don't go out and discuss it with the community so they can understand what's going on even though like nih don't forget it's taxpayer bills and funding that comes to us so to me the ugliest part of the pandemic was that was full front of how disconnected people were from their ability and desire to work with us and collaborate. There wasn't a single scientist or physician out there that wanted to strip people of any freedom, no more than a meteorologist wants to strip you of your freedom when he or she's discussing there's a hurricane coming. You're telling me I gotta leave my home? No, I won't. All right, man, fine, stay. Let the hurricane come, like I'll just tell you. From my standpoint, it was the same thing. We were just, we we're trying to put out a call. We saw a virus we've never seen before. We saw what it was doing in certain regions, overwhelming their hospitals. Yeah, we took some extreme measurements in the beginning because we just didn't know, right? Same thing, when a hurricane's coming, you labeled it as a category five. At the last second, if it deviates, you're not gonna be like, ah, oh, the meteorologist lied. No, we're making the best <laughs> hypothesis with the data we got to protect you. And you know what? You can yell at us while you're alive with each breath you take, because you know what? There was some probably realization that it did play out in the manner that we said. And so from my standpoint, that's what we wanted to go out. That's what we wanted to go and say. And the fact that so much disconnect happened, it wasn't because of, it was because of a variety of things. One, us lacking in the ability to really make sure that we plant the appropriate seeds to be seen as part of the forest of the society, the fabric of it. We lost that capability and then we suddenly entered and we wanted to talk. And the community is not stupid. Many of them were like, oh, now you want to talk to us because we're overwhelming your hospital? Where were you years ago? Two, there were other people who had their own bias, who had their own gains from this. And again, this isn't the first time we saw this happen with science, right? We saw this, for instance, 1950s, all the way culminating to the 1964 U.S. Surgeon General report, right? From U.S. Surgeon General who discussed smoking causes cancer. That should have been, if you thought science was that great that people would accept it, you'd be like, what's it? Nail in the coffin, this product will stop in 10 years still around 15% of the population still smokes and a massive genesis of probably new patients in the future will come about because of the electronic cigarette and their, the youth usage epidemic we see in it. We didn't win anyone over. There's other people fighting that science, mitigating it and doing it in a way, you know, that, yeah, it's deceitful. Of course it is. It's frustrating. Sometimes it's painted with lies, 
but it's also painted in a manner that people can understand these simple narratives, I'll call them that. Science needs to figure out how to do that same similar messaging. We need to figure out how to constantly have a voice out there because if we're not that consistent, there's others who are and they're gonna keep winning people over. That to me is what the pandemic really revealed. It revealed that we are poor communicators of the insight that we, we gotta like get to model ourselves. And this is not meant to sound religious, but we gotta model ourselves, look at the faiths, right? Or not all of them, a good portion of them have their own apostles and disciples that go out and discuss what that faith is. We need to do the same thing with science and medicine. We need to have our own disciples going out there discussing what we have found and accomplished. That way people not only believe us for the next public health crisis, but things like climate change. I was in a, uh, San Francisco a while back ago and went to Napa Valley and every vineyard there was discussing how climate change was impacting their crops. It's impacting their business. They're like, we're not, why are you denying the science? It's right there, we got the data coming in. So we need to figure that out. That to me is the, should be as emphasized and prioritized as anything else we do in medicine. How much do you think with the way society wants, and this is piggybacking on what you just said, society is used to having instant answers. I can get anything delivered to my house within an hour, within a day, and then when you have a new, the new virus that comes out there, it takes time to do the scientific research. It takes time to go get it peer-reviewed by multiple labs across the world, and then as people are figuring out this is new, Yes, the data points will change and evolve as you get more of it, and then you start looking for patterns. How much do you think of what happened is just, quite frankly, the public in general looking for instant answers immediately and then not used to the rapid change as more data points were being discovered? Spot on. We, scientists, physicians, need to do better to improve the science literacy of, of every American citizen. I'm serious, because like, if people understood that, and people would understand, yeah, I get it. Dr. G is saying right now, March 19th, 2020, may change by tonight. And I personally, like, I can recall to my own conversations, I was doing that. I was saying, hey, look, I'm giving you the best information I have now. It could change by tomorrow. We'll find out. Science is incredibly humbling. It's not that you're wrong. You're making the best calculated decision based on the data that you have at that moment. If you want to paint it out and it's binary, black and white, right and wrong, that's it's unfair to a profession where our job is to learn in real time and do the best that we can. There's a pace to it. The challenge is a public health crisis like a pandemic changes that pace and puts us to make decisions in real time. And there's no Monday morning quarterbacking where you're like, maybe I would have done A, B, and C. It's like, great, this isn't a sports game. We can't like redo it for the next one. We're doing the best we can with, in real time. But with my stamp from where I'm coming from is, if we did a great job of medical messaging, science messaging, people would have known that. Okay, you know what? They're gathering the data they have now and they're giving us the best decision. They're giving us the best insight right now. And like, I'm sitting here, we have like meteorology tools that can predict the weather like 14 days later. But I promise you, if someone looks at the weather map now and is like, all right, two weeks it's supposed to rain. And then right. a day before that, they're like, oh, it's no longer raining. If I could look back and be like, that guy was wrong two weeks ago. No, they understand the data they have now that they collected. They're making the best hypothesis. And of course, proximity is going to be key to understanding if that hypothesis will play out or not. And so we need to do a better job to make sure people have a good basis of scientific literacy, not to make them scientists, but just so they can have, just like people have financial literacy. You're not going to become a CPA. You're just going to know how to manage money to some extent. So that to me, we need a, we need and should have done a better job with, and not just during the pandemic, throughout just life in general. <laughs> so I'm gonna ask two COVID questions about what the public was asked to do, just because there was so much noise around it. To this day, I still don't know what is true or not. And like I said, I try to go find the white papers from places, but as my camera goes nuts, do cloth masks, make a difference in the spread and community spread all right so i will say this we're gonna we're gonna scale this up a little bit sure masks versus no masks just that binary evaluation masks work yes okay now you're spot one it's a type of mask and the situation you're about to put yourself into i say i'm going to run into a cbs I pick up my medication that I know it's waiting at the pharmacy. I call, they're like, yeah, it's right there. Just grab and go. It's paid for, grab and go. You gotta grab and go. I'm gonna be in there for minutes, pretty fast. 
dodging, weaving, grab and go. Cloth masks is fine for that situation. So meaning the masks you want to use, you just have to know what you're using them for, right? The situation. Cloth masks, I think if you're going to go in a setting that you probably will be there in less than 10 minutes, it's perfectly fine. If everyone else is wearing cloth masks, probably can double that time. 20 minutes maybe. So from that standpoint, that's how I strategically think of it. Like I'll grab a cloth mask quickly because I know I'm going in and out. Now with that said, you know, what if it started raining and now I'm stuck in the store and now I'm wishing I had a better mask. Scaling that up, surgical mask, also again, great, but you gotta know for the right setting. I wear it in front of certain patients that I know aren't infected and I'm feeling good and I'll wear it and I know I'm gonna be in there with them less than an hour. I'll wear it, feel, I feel pretty confident in it. Now, the ones that are 90 plus, right, the K94s, the N95s, those I'm wearing when I know I'm going to be there for quite some time, hours. Or I'm going to really become face-to-face with a patient who's got active COVID spitting that out on me as I'm shoving a breathing tube in them. So <laughs> sure. all the masks work. You just need to know the setting you need to wear them in. That's it. It's like choosing clothes, right? You're not going to throw in a jacket in 90-degree weather. That's a little overkill. I'm not going to wear an N95 when I'm like about to run in for a few seconds. A little overkill, to my opinion. But we'll wear a cloth mask for those settings. So they work. You just need to know the setting you're about to put them in. Gotcha. And the second question is related to vaccines and talking about personal choice. So I had a lot of friends of mine. I have one person I know actually lose their job by refusing to get the vaccine. And the company was trying to make it a requirement to be employed there. And then I just had some others just refuse to do it. And my understanding of the vaccine is it does not, it protects you. It protects you. If you get sick, you're not going to die. The symptoms hopefully will be lessened. That's my understanding of it, but it does not prevent spread. What is, what was the kind of the medical reason to start having these local governments and state governments, even the medical, this part, I don't know, to go, hey, we need to require the vaccines, even though it doesn't necessarily prevent community spread, unless I am absolutely completely wrong on that. Please correct me. Yeah, no, no. So your spot on the vaccine that we created was not, its job was to prevent severe COVID. And it did just that, prevented severe COVID. We got a great vaccine to achieve that. And from that standpoint, the reason why we wanted to prevent severe COVID, for instance, right now, there's another bat, another virus going around, monkeypox. Yep. You do not see at all us with that same sense of urgency that we have with COVID. There's a specific reason for that. COVID took away a part of a functioning society, your healthcare system. We were, there was one point at Hopkins, behemoth, where we didn't have rooms to take on a stroke, a heart attack, nothing. We were overwhelmed. Yeah, this disrupted the health system. This disrupt, that's why you saw that sense of urgency. We didn't hear COVID coming out of a, an office visit, like we saw monkeypox, like men and women go into clinics and saying, what the heck are these rashes? We heard about it, how? In the hospital, people dying at high rates. So our job, our focus was, we want to stop that. We want to keep people out of, we want to prevent severe COVID. In fairness, that's what we put our aim and focus on. And we created great vaccines to do just that. We wanted to make sure enough people got it. So we saw, or in the back of our minds, we're like, that's going to make a dent. If we're going to truly make a dent in offloading those cases, really need to go out there and have these conversations, get people to be convinced. And that's what we we're trying to do. There was one other thing that the vaccines that we saw unintentional, but of a huge benefit is it looked like it removed asymptomatic spread. I mean, hey, I'm feeling great. It's one of the devils of COVID. It's how we got around so quickly. It's like, yeah, I feel good. You feel good. Let's hang out. Three days later, hey, I'm right. positive. Ah, and you got me infected. So that was the intention. Now, Here's science. We got a good scientific product. How are we going to get the community to buy into this? You know what? If we really put forward decades of building trust, it should have been that, hey, we got a good vaccine. I and mean, I went out to these faith-based organizations. I, I left. People were like, how did you convince them? I was like, how did you? I spent 10 years with these people. I spent, I, I went, I prayed with them. I went in. They saw me as a member of their community. So did they. They said all the same thing with my colleagues. We established trust there. So when I go in, I discuss a new scientific thing. The imam, the rabbi, they quote something to align the cultural identity. Yeah, it's not like I sat there screaming. We have trust. The challenge is not every healthcare system did just that. No one else did that. So yeah, I saw businesses require it. And looking back on it, is the, is it was it the right or wrong decision? 
hard. I think that isn't a simple yes or no. It saved 20 million lives. People would be like, it was worth it. Okay. But you know what? We probably also strained a lot of relationships because we didn't go out and message it. Like we're all human and I get that. I get we don't like to be forced into something. I get that. And especially forced into trust, I get that too. And that's my frustration to some extent. People, like I'm gonna say it in this fashion, like I think there is a good intention from that. And we have mandates for other vaccines going to the schools, going into yep. the military and so forth. They shouldn't come at the sacrifice of still talking to people and trying to communicate with them. That's the part that frustrates me is like, if that's your only angle, you're going to create a lot of friction. You should hold weekly town hall meetings. Do it. Commit. I remember I held a town hall meeting with one of the local radio stations. I'm sorry, TV stations. And someone after that during it was just like very, I'm like, look, my friend, here's my email address. Email me. Let's talk. Because right now we're just hijacking this between you and me. We emailed back and forth months, weeks. And I'm just coming out of it like this is what you'll gain. I'm not forcing you. Yeah, make your own decision. Kudos. This is what I'm going to say to you. But I was consistent and persistent. He emailed me. I got back to him within minutes. I was like, hey, I want him to see that I'm invested in him. Yeah, it's one person. I don't know the influence he may or she he may have. He got vaccinated. Granted, two years later, he still got vaccinated. And a lot of it was just, he's like, must be serious if you're taking this much time to do it. Of course it is. I want you to be protected. But in the day, like, I get this notion of people want to feel like they're making the best decision themselves. And whether you're Spanish or American, Greek or Italian, we like this notion of we had the information and we made it ourselves. Or it came from a trusted person. So, do, you know, when people are asking me, are there mandates the right or wrong decision? I would say if that's all you did, it's just the mandate without communicating, without discussion, without allowing conversation to occur, I'm probably going to say it was the wrong decision. If you've said mandates, in addition to we're going to hold town halls, we want you to feel comfortable with this decision, we're going to earn your trust, and we're going to invest in these kind of conversations, health talks, etc. And I'll say, you know what, probably was a, the Goldilocks decision, the best of both worlds there. But you can't sacrifice someone's humanity without telling them why. And that's the part that gets me, because you know what, we planted a lot of friction with it people that are it's going to take a while to win back over so that's how i'm going to respond I'm, I, I know it may not be the right <laughs> the answer you wanted you're like give me yes or no but my frustration is if we just drop mandates without explaining to human beings why we're just going to create more friction and then we're setting up also the stage for someone to come in and come up with a better narrative even if it's false to win these people over and suddenly we're losing a generation of potential pe pro-science people no and that's one of those things you obviously Everyone that hears this or that I run into has lived under this. And I saw what my wife went through. She's an assistant principal. The, these conflicting things all the time because you didn't know to trust this source or, or local government did something versus the state government versus what was coming out of NIA. There was these little tweaks and things and trying to thread the needle. And it was just, it was a nightmare because there wasn't, like you've said, there wasn't like that single trusted unified voice that it felt like within there. But uh, I think like you, like what you've been talking about, everything circles back to getting the physicians, getting the science, getting the practitioners out there. So it's not just that thing of, hey, I'm going to pop my head out every time something big happens, which obviously in our lifetimes, I don't know of anything to this magnitude that has. This is one of those watershed moments when I'm 70, you're going to go, remember that time back in 2020 <laughs> that, that was going on? It's definitely a, it's definitely been interesting to watch and it's going to be one of those interesting things to live through. But I wanted to transition a little bit from one crazy disease th thing to another weird disease and how you and I crossed paths. And uh, June just wrapped up June as a HHT Awareness Month genetic disorder. And get you, if you don't mind first, from your medical perspective, I have long since lost all of the, the official medical stuff after going through the initial diagnosis, however, 10, 12, 13 years ago. But talking about the weird diseases, genetic diseases, and exactly what, you know, HHT kind of is and what you do and your involvement in it. Yeah, no, I gravitated towards HHT, you know, a little bit serendipitously. There was a colleague, two colleagues, one was taught retiring, another one was just tired. Mm -hmm. And you're like, hey, you're young and you're a young faculty want to do HHT. And uh, actually the reason for agreeing to it is 
All right, let, let me tell you the background of this, the reason for it, right? That, and I know probably everybody that you're talking about too, so. <laughs> so I, I really want to understand how to achieve health equity. And a lot of my investment, as we're discussing here, my academic research comes in the form, part of it in the form of community engagement, where community can fill in the gaps, even though there, that's it, it's so a gap filling, it's very reactive. And then trying to take that into kind of health models and so forth. And then I also investigated through preventable risk factors like smoking. And then I wanted to actually dive into, when I was offered the HHT position, I was like, I want to understand how genetics, start off with the same genes, how is that going to be an equitable distribution of health outcomes for patients? And the reason why I wanted to do that is because then I can really paint this amazing art in my mind. That's every academic physician is trying to find a niche. But then I can discuss health equity from the lens of genetics to neighborhoods and everything in between. And really, I felt like it strongly helped complete it. So I gravitated it from that standpoint. First of all, clinically, I love my HHT patients. I love being their doctor. It's one of the most rewarding things out there because you know what? It actually, if I scale it back, it's like what medicine should be. Multidisciplinary, when we bring them into clinic, they're seeing all the doctors they need to see in real time. <laughs> Don't they tell me about it. <laughs> they scan from head to toe. Like I'm picking up HHT things, but I'm also picking up other things. Like, ooh, heart looks like it's got a little bit of calcium in it. Let's make sure you talk about that with your primary care physician so he or she can help manage that. Like to me, like how we manage this rare disease, I'm sitting there, I'm like, why isn't just all of medicine like this? The patient comes in, it's like we got a little hodgepodge of a multidisciplinary team versus a disconnect of I'm gonna refer you three months, good luck. So like you saw the one doctor for this problem that's been happening for six months, now I gotta wait an additional three months. It's frustrating. So part of me is just, I'm getting that inside of rare diseases and the clinics that are there for them from cystic fibrosis, HHC, we really could revolutionize medicine if we put more stock in how to approach it for everyone else. And then the other part of it was, not, and I'm, not, I'm going to point HHT out because it's the disease I work with, but genetic diseases tend to have a little bit of their own implicit bias because that's all we focus on is the genes. That understanding from genotype to phenotype, the clinical presentation, and even the criteria for HHT becomes a little biased, family history. I understand that. It's a good notion to understand your genetics. But it's also implying that you have a good family structure where, hey, generations are always hanging out. A lot of socioeconomically disadvantaged communities, that fabric of family is not there. So you're putting them, you're like, I don't know. Like, I haven't seen my dad since I was a kid. I don't know anything about that side of family. And yes, there's other American family, other American structures that kind of have a similar feel, but family history has its own little bit of implicit bias. Like. It implies you have a good sense of your family structure. And then those gosh darn telangiectasias, which, yeah, my <laughs> pale white skin pop out just fine. But what if and that's dark? what... Well, let me set the... I want to set the tone before he calls exactly, in very layman terms, exactly what HHT is. Oh, I, yeah. I And I, I just let you know, I'm very open about this. Okay. I, before you came on board and, and I was working with the previous ones that had retired and moved on, I actually did one of the uh, double-blind studies for different nasal sprays. But it's uh, the way I explain it to other people is my body builds blood vessels. The wall, the thickness of the walls are not uniform. They're not like real blood vessels. The blood may not go anywhere. It may pull up in certain areas. And the most visible sign of this, and I get stopped with this all the time, is nosebleeds. The nosebleeds are clearly the most visible symptom. And if you're around me with any particular time, you're going to see me get one and wonder what is wrong with me. <laughs> so if I know I'm around somebody new and I expect to spend significant time with them, I will typically warn them ahead of time. Hey, if you see me run out of the room in the mid sentence, it is because I'm getting a nosebleed and here's why. Don't worry about me. I'm used to it at this point. I'm not embarrassed by it. So we're talking about the genetics and stuff. In my case, we finally did the genetic testing neither my mom or my dad actually had the gene that I popped for. How unique is that? How oh. and all of that? Yeah, no, it's massively unique. And remember, HHT isn't a genetic diagnosis. It's a clinical diagnosis. You need these four criteria. Okay, okay. And yeah, we were aware of some genes that do this, but, and what I'm getting at is from my standpoint, what I hope to bring to HHT that we can use for other rare diseases is extending beyond the, just the genetics and that over-focus of it. It's an appropriate focus, but shouldn't be the central focus. 
So I'm sitting here realizing there's patients who come in delayed with HHT diagnosis. Why? They don't know their family history and their skin is very dark. From my people of Indian ethnicity to African-Americans or Caribbean-Americans, dark. I can't spot a single gosh darn telangiectasia on their skin, that, those blood vessels. Yep. Oh, yeah. I've got them. I can see them on my fingernails right now. <laughs> and then here's some more implicit bias. We just put out a paper hot off the press, a few weeks old. Adaptation come in. And I was talking about, hey, we're going to have to do this IV medication called bevazizumab or known as Avastin to help out with your bleeding. Correct. IV, I'm going to, every two weeks, you got to come in, six treatments. And he says to me, all right, doc, how many people like me do well with it? It's the first time I was asked, I get asked those questions a lot, my pulmonary world, actually my internal medicine past, worry about diabetes, it worked for me. My age group, my ethnicity, my race, doesn't work for me. I love that. And I sat at him and I was like, I actually don't know. This is a rare disease. You're probably one of the first black African-American patients that I'm gonna discuss treating you with. So let me do, I'm gonna do what every physician does. Every physician draws knowledge from three places. I read about it, right? Clinical textbooks and so forth. I research about it, or it's my own clinical expertise. So clinical research or knowledge. So. Clinically, I had a dearth of it. So I was like, all right, I've got to figure out what's going on. I, I didn't have that. Research-wise, I don't research on that. So I went into published literature. And the paper that we just published, based out of the US, only we only looked at US because race is very different from country to country. All the big publications about intravenous, that Zizimab, never reported on race. Reported on mm. age, gender, they reported on their genes, never discussed race. And I'm sitting there just flabbergasted. I mean, do you imagine if the vaccine trials came out and they didn't discuss how many black African-Americans they recruited in addition to white slash Caucasians, we would be hung, not one. And it's not exclusive to HHT to have that kind of narrow focus on just genetics and so forth. So what gravitates me to this is because I feel like to truly revolutionize medicine, it shouldn't just be on a few fields and so forth. Everyone needs to feel this notion of health equity. So what draws me to HHT is I want to make sure that we can achieve an equitable conversation for every demographic. Because HHT is not exclusive to people from Curacao, where the grad here came from, and et cetera. Many people. Bald white guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'm excited about this. I love working with these patients. I think HHT can become a model to revolutionize modern medicine, in addition to a model to help us revolutionize how we approach rare diseases from an equitable standpoint. And how do you communicate that down? Because I, I like I said, I'm very open about my case. I don't really hide much about it because I try to tell other people that think they may have it. Like I did recently in an email, it was the first one I've actually thought needed to come see somebody. Everybody else, I'm like, go see an ENT, go get your nosebleeds checked. But in my case, I've had nosebleeds my entire life. I go to a local ENT thinking it's just a normal thing because I didn't have any other symptoms that I was physically aware of. And we went through multiple treatment sessions with just trying to stop just the nosebleed itself for at least two years, at least two years before he was, he goes, man, I've been in practice for 30 years and I think you may have this really weird thing. I need you to go up to Johns Hopkins. Yeah. How do we cut down that that time frame for this particular condition as a whole so from my standpoint you know, one of the just and again this would be really great if we had better investment in communicating with individuals right because you got to understand as physicians as clinicians the way we think it's all it's a lot of it is probability you have these symptoms you're going through with that your mind's probably going to begin to think common things and again it's not a knock on the doctor We're, what's the probability that you have hht it's low right. it's a probability it's just sure. malformations hi so we're going to approach it like that the because every doctor in my opinion there's two differentials that come to mind immediately the common thing and something you've missed in the past that they never want to miss again even if it's uncommon it just lingers at a doc at a colleague like that who missed a blood clot once and he like blood clot comes up when it's differential for almost everything we discuss. And I'm like, it, it's, it would be uncommon. It's like, you don't want to miss it. I was like, fair enough, man. That's how we think. And so from my standpoint, how do you get 
closer to having that physician say, maybe it is a rare disease, it's tough. And, and I see this is my recommendation for patients. Make sure you leave that clinic setting with an understanding of what they think is going on, why do they think it's going on, and what do they think is gonna to happen to me? Because that way, you know what they're thinking, and now you're off on this trajectory. Because who's gonna reveal the right answer is time. And suddenly, if you feel like you're deviating from that, and things just didn't connect, you report back to that. Not in a scolding way, and just like, like, hey, I'm your patient, you're my doctor, this is our relationship. Let me tell you, well, you laid out, ah, it deviated, it didn't work. I do that constantly with my patients because it's very humbling. Listen, Mr. John, this is what I think is gonna happen. You're gonna communicate to me. Like, I'm not your doctor just at clinic visits, I'm your doctor all the time. Here's my email. If any of this deviates from this hypothesis today, you gotta let me know. Don't wait three months being miserable. And I get patients who do that. Dr. G, it's not working out, man. What you said is not happening. Great, that means I'm going down my differential. Because sometimes common things present uncommonly and uncommon things present commonly. It's, we're trying to juggle the data that we have at this moment. So that's it. From my standpoint, have an open line of communication and see if the hypothesis he or she laid out clinically during that moment is happening. And if it's deviating, we're like, man, this just doesn't seem right. You know, trust your spider senses and have that discussion. Honestly, I think the way you get to having people think of it sooner, yeah, we can do campaigns, we can raise awareness, that's great. And that happens constantly for a lot of diseases. Same, at the end of the day though, we are going to focus on things that we commonly see. That's just how we have sure. to happen to think. And so from my standpoint, it's really gonna also just depend on the patient's advocacy. There's nothing wrong with patients. Google away, come and tell us why do you think this is? Because from my standpoint, I actually like that because it gives me an impression of what they're the most concerned about. And I can put out fires or reaffirm like that's not what's happening. But from my standpoint, it's having that open dialogue and really making sure you have an understanding of what they think the trajectory is gonna go. Because if it's fulfilling that, yeah, they're spot on, they made the right judgment call. It's deviating from it. Then you gotta start saying, hey, you said this, this is what's happened. They're making the best decision they have, right? It's like being that meteorologist and being like, tell me the weather in 14 days. Like, that's what I think is gonna be, right? And so from that standpoint, if it's deviating, communicate that back to them, have an open dialogue, professional, respectful, and say anything else we should start thinking as you chip away from common things to now beginning to look in the uncommon realm. And that's it. This is, to me, why I love being a doctor. And I tell that to every patient. With the data I got now, the decision I'm going to make, this is how we'll go forward. If it's not working out, we'll figure it out. If you got me, I'm not going anywhere. I don't quit you. Figure it out. <laughs> no, and I'll say without getting very graphic, which I've told the story very graphically on what caused him, my ENT, to actually shoot it up. The I remember the attendant that answered the phone after I went through some very horrifying experiences trying to get the nosebleed stopped toward the end and he told me he goes you got a direct line to me from now on there will be no gatekeepers and i have told the nurses that because the experience was it got to be it got to be painful let's put it that way with the aggressiveness of what we were trying to do but uh, as we wrap up what would you suggest for the individual we always talk about diet and exercise to improve health, but what would you recommend for the individual that may not be something that is is that they can do to better improve their overall health condition? As you look at the charts, you look at the information for us to take more control of our own lives. This is what I would encourage everyone, right? You gotta understand as doctors, clinicians, nurses, our goal is survival, number one, and then quality, number two, right? You can't have quality unless you're alive. So yes, that's why our bias tends to focus on survival. Hence why even in the pandemic, you saw that. We didn't focus on stopping transmission. We focused on stopping severe COVID. Calm that down and then we can dive into, all right, let's figure out how we stop this as well. What I would encourage everyone, you gotta have this, you know what health means, even though you never maybe sat down and health means having a job, having a social network, having a faith, having a culture, having a hobby, what does health mean to you? And then communicate that to your doctor so whatever he or she recommends can align with it. I think you need, for instance, I think you need to get a mammogram. Back to this. 
and they're like, I don't want to be a patient. And he and she goes, I see you working every day. I see you enjoying your grandkids. I'm asking for your mammogram because if we find anything, we can treat it before we rob you of what you're enjoying. A minor inconvenience to prevent a massive disruption. That's what I really would encourage people. You don't have to have the fix these numbers or do I have to check my blood pressure every day? I mean, you can if you want, go nuts, collect the data. What I want out of every patient is just tell me what health means to you. What do you want to achieve with it? You want to be able to go to that job interview, not huffing and puffing, great. We'll work on good inhalers to achieve just that. You want to go to that same job interview, not pouring out nosebleeds, great. We'll work. <laughs> because I can have patients with the same symptoms, same objective findings, and one wants every aggressive thing done, and the other one's like, you know what, I'm okay. And I respect that. I want people to tell me what they want out of health, because when they look at me, they're like, well, you're the doctor, what do you want? I was like, I just want you to live and be happy. <laughs> I don't have randomized controlled trials telling me how to make you happy. How can we, as a medical community, accommodate your being, your not just mere existence, but your living, your livelihood? So what I would just tell every patient, have those conversations for the living moments, even think about it from an advanced directive. How far do I want to go? If I'm 30, my 30-year-old advanced directive is very extreme. <laughs> but I know what I'm <laughs> Probably gonna be a little bit looser. It's gonna be like, all right, yeah, we. <laughs> yeah. So what I would just encourage everyone is just, just talk to your. What does health mean to you? And then you communicate that to your doctor, where he or she can align health goals to achieve just that. Awesome. Best way to put it. Best way to connect with you on Twitter. Yeah, by all means. My DMs are open. Shoot me whatever you guys want. I, you know what, this is it's all the only life we got. And one of the beauties of this planet is each other. It's people. There's bad, I get it, but we're so good. We're, we've sent a robot to Mars. Do we not ever sit back and say, oh, <laughs> we, got, we got a robot on that planet. <laughs> so connect away, DM away, whatever you guys want. But that is, and if the conversation gets lengthier, I'll give you my email and you guys can send me an email. Sounds good. I appreciate it. This has been super fun for me and informative. Hope you had a good time. I had a great time. But I'm happy to come back whenever you want.